0: Hello, creeps! I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Good evening everyone out there in listener land. We're starting a new series here at Horror Vanguard, guaranteed to raise some spooky sensations. John and I are going to be doing reviews of academic texts. These are books that you might not be keyed into unless you're in the Gothic Studies scene. We're hoping to give these books a wider audience as well as critically engage with the ideas that are on the cutting edge of Gothic Studies. We'll be releasing some of these as mini-episodes, but all of them are going to be released as blogs on John and I's respective blogs, thehaunt.blog and darrow.media. We're kicking things off today with Bridget M. Marshall's fantastic book, The Industrial Gothic. So today we're going to be talking about Bridget Marshall's industrial Gothic workers exploitation and urbanization in transatlantic nineteenth century literature. So very up our alley, and I do believe this one is fairly fresh. I think it only released in America this August. So I guess uh, before we well oh, go on, go on, go on. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was just gonna say what are your what are your first what was your first impression? What are what are your like broad thoughts here?
1: Well, I think it's a pretty it's it's well overdue the kind of topic of this book. It's it's well overdue for for a serious book length treatment. Uh, I think this raises some really interesting avenues for uh, future research, and basically that's the whole point of this book series is to kind of give people who may not be that plugged into the kind of academic side of horror studies uh, a a kind of few clues as to what is happening. Uh, what what the kind of new research is and or how we think this might kind of impact and alter the way that we think about uh, horror and gothic a little more broadly
0: I think that is the best possible way to phrase what this series is about <laughs> so thank you for doing so um,
1: What about you what were your thoughts
0: I, I generally I generally liked industrial gothic I, I think Bridget M Marshall, Did did a great job with this book. There's a lot of what I really like in a solid academic text here, Um, and including that inspiration, right? Like, as I was reading through my copy, like so many of my notes were just things I want to check out later, things I want to look into. And for me, that's one of the best qualities an academic text could have is inspiring me to to do that further research and to look into things.
1: Yeah, that, that's sort of the whole point. A good academic book should be a spur, right? Mm-hmm. The whole point is not that we sort of solve things, but rather that we kind of encourage further investigation. Uh, and yeah, I, I agree. I did I did much the same thing. Um, I think there's quite a lot to build on here. Um, and this raises some kind of like fairly big and maybe even quite complex questions about some really foundational issues that I think it'll be fun to get into as we get more uh, into the kind of like detail and nitty gritty of what we thought about this book, yeah. So um, I'm gone. Where would you like to start?
0: I was just about to ask you that. Uh, let's uh, let's start with the introduction. Let's see, we're going to go chapter by chapter from introduction through epilogue here. And I think as far as far as my thoughts on the introduction go, I mean, great introduction sums up the chapters nicely. Works for me. Um, one of my favorite aspects about this text is that it uses a kind of gothic. Literary mode of analysis to also look at news media throughout the 18 and 1900s, um, which I find to be very refreshing. I love seeing um, gothic studies applied outside of the kind of canonical Horace Walpole and Radcliffe uh, pool of texts.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I think that's super important. Yeah,
0: especially like I didn't know anything about the Albion Mill fires. Uh, prior, uh, yeah. Prior to reading this, and, um, if you, if you get a copy of this book, there's, uh, some reproductions of kind of contemporary news art about the Albion Mill fires. And there's like demons mm-hmm. flying above the fire, uh, to, to signify the horror of what's going on there. And I was like, I did not know <laughs> that this was like the modality of news of the day. Like this was, it's a very interesting book to read. And, and it sets up those historical elements in the introduction very well.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so there is, I think there's there's a, uh, there's a couple of things from this that, it's, that I think we can get into in the introduction and the first chapter. Um, one, which is a question of method. And I'm going to keep coming back to this. Uh, so Marshall describes the, the project as having a, a kind of broadly historicist
0: mm-hmm.
1: method, methodology. Um, which is really good because it's about grounding cultural production in the context of the time, right? So uh, this is why the book really uh, persuasively, I think, links um, kind of archival research and diaries and journalism with things like uh, Penny Dreadfuls, novels, uh, poetry, and songs. Um but what what are your thoughts about kind of historicism as a method?
0: So I, I think it's I think it's really interesting what's going on here. It's almost this like new historicist approach, right, where we're unseating you know things that we don't usually treat as literary texts and treating them as literary texts, uh, such as the news around the Albion Mill fires that I've mentioned earlier. The the one thing that I do like about that in in this book in particular is that. Uh, so, and, and Marshall herself outlines this in in the text, but that the Gothic is usually reserved for fantasy, right? For flights of fancy, you know, like the Gothic is spooky stories. But the Gothic is actually everything and everywhere, you know. The, the Gothic is not so much a genre as it is a mode, right? It's it's kind of above and beyond genre. And I do really appreciate that we're using kind of the. Tools of Gothic studies to look at the world more broadly, because I think that that is just I mean it goes without saying at this point that I think that that's incredibly fruitful and a good thing to do
1: yeah, I mean this is where I think some of the limitations of historicism come mm-hmm. in because and this is not this is not something that's directed against this particular book, but kind of against the tendency that creeps up, which is to have a normative conception mm-hmm. of what his of what history is. Um, and so this is mostly drawing off nineteenth, uh, like late 18th and 19th century sources. Mm-hmm. And there's a really... So the V21 Collective, um, the Victorian Studies for the 21st Century Group, has a really good manifesto on this. And the first thesis of the manifesto is that Victorian studies has fallen prey to positivist historicism, a mode of inquiry that aims to do little more than exhaustively describe preserve and display the past among its symptoms are a fetishization of the archival an aspiration to definitively map the DNA of the period an endless accumulation of mere information at its worst positive positivist historicism devolves into show and tell epistemologies and bland antiquarianism its primary affective mode is the amused chuckle <laughs> and it's Its primary institutional mode is the instrumentalist evisceration of humanistic ways of knowing. And I think what this means is like, if you're going to do historical, if you're going to be a historicist, what you have to have is a theory of history. And I think sometimes in Gothic studies, more broadly, a big problem is that people lapse into this kind of naive positivist historicism where you just go like, oh, here's some journalism and here's like our historical factual object. And we just kind of like join the dots between that and some fictional objects. And I think for the most part, this book does kind of avoid that. But it, it hedges the question of how are we actually understanding history? Are we understanding history as just a kind of like simple given uh, as something that can be like, and uh, you know, discovered by the antiquarian and the archivist or are we dealing with history as a constructed political force? Um, so, like, uh, I, I, I'm I, a historicist. I, I think actually looking at history is super important, especially for any kind of, like, literary or cultural studies. But, like, I I also think that sometimes there are a lot of unspoken assumptions in in a lot of academic writing about exactly what that means and what that looks like.
0: Absolutely. I, I would completely agree. Uh history, much like nearly anything in our society, if you don't approach that with a, a strong understanding of what you're doing on a social and a political level, it's just gonna feed back into these normative appraisals. And that is something that needs to be fundamentally resisted.
1: Yeah, and, and like I say, I don't think this is not this is not a kind of like you know, just something that I picked up in Marshall's book, but I think it's, it's something that's kind of, it's sort of endemic to a lot of, particularly Gothic studies, because Gothic as a form is so interested in, in history. Mm -hmm. Um, There is one thing from the intro I really like, which is the link between revolution and Gothic cultural production. Um, So like historically, a lot of people have connected the origins of Gothic writing to uh, the bourgeois revolution of the French of of France in the late seventeen hundreds, right? Uh, it's tied up in a lot of uh, English Gothic writings, anti Catholicism, right? It defines English Protestant politics against the radical continental Catholic other. Um, but I really like the fact that Marshall links this to another revolution as well, which is the Industrial Revolution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that. The kind of revolutionary gothic that this is hinting towards is is incredibly compelling. I think that the kind of synthesis of all of these different historical streams into kind of the protoplasm of that idea that exists here in the introduction is, and we'll see this as the text grows and starts to blossom, right? But that that for me is was one of the most exciting things there in the opening. That was one of the things where I... I This is like just jotting reams of notes and being like, okay, like this is, this is something worth nurturing here.
1: And actually it's really important to think about what we mean um, when we say that the Gothic is linked to revolution, because really the French revolution and the transatlantic industrial revolution are kind of two different kinds of revolution. Mm -hmm. So you can have revolutions in uh, social relations in the social mode of production, or you can have revolutions in the actual mode of production itself. Uh, and it's pretty clear which one is which. And I think if you take them as a starting point for the Gothic, that gives you very different kind of emphases in what you look at. So if you link the Gothic back to the French Revolution, to the, that's that's a revolution in social relations, right? That's, that is a revolution against uh an aristocratic uh and monarchic overclass um so you make it into a social it's a social form which explains a lot of like why we have interesting things like castle of otranto and a lot of Anne radcliffe stories which are all about kind of like lords and dispossessed nobility and things like that but what's super interesting about this is that if you link it to a revolution in the mode of production you connect that uh industrialism to cultural production directly, which is what Marshall does kind of implicitly, but not explicitly, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a reason the vast majority of this book is concerned with things like uh, penny dreadfuls and newspapers, because that was the stuff that could be easily and cheaply printed and distributed thanks to changes in technology.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that, you know, this, this court's like a third element that's going on here. And and like, one thing that I really enjoyed in this book is it's, is it's really grounded in kind of a working class discourse. And kind of another vein that's, that's kind of in what we're talking about here is this kind of shift in, in material relations did mean that these that literature, whether that's newspapers or fiction, was more accessible to kind of the working poor. As that got cheaper to produce, as it was mass-produced, newspapers, magazines, books fell into the hands of people the aristocracy never thought would have newspapers, magazines, and books. And that, I think, is kind of a change for the Gothic. It's a change the Gothic goes through. And one of the things that Marshall highlights early in the text here. Is that this kind of first period? Or there's, traditionally in Gothic studies, there's like this period where the Gothic disappeared for like fifty years, and that just happens to coincide with the the boom of the industrial revolution. And and Marshall is seeking to kind of bridge that gap and to prove the presence of the Gothic in that space.
1: Well, I don't know if it, if it if it disappeared. It disappears in its kind of like oh, classical yeah, yeah, yeah. form. I mean, I think it's it hybridizes and proliferates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what allows it to kind of take root in emerging working class literary culture.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this gets gets us on to chapter one, the industrial gothic novel. Because uh, is, is, uh, one of the things that Marshall highlights in this first chapter is that that kind of the Horace Walpole mode of the Gothic, where you have your, your evil king or you know, noble tyrant and, and the maiden locked away in a subterranean cellar and this kind of hero that must save the day, kind of like these classic Gothic elements. They, they disappear in the industrial Gothic, but it's not that they disappear, it's that they're reborn right the 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 evil uh, monarch gets replaced by the evil mill owner you know these these things just change identities and move around
1: yeah exactly exactly there is this uh re uh formulating of of the gothic away from its kind of classical tropes of like seventeen eighty to about eighteen twenty
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the one of the things, like, I really enjoyed this piecing together of, like, the category of the industrial Gothic novel. Um, I think that that's incredibly useful for, like, realizing a, I guess, long history of the Gothic, right? And, and instead of talking about periods of decline and decay, just looking at it as one unbroken, constantly hybridizing chain. So that I, I really enjoyed. And another thing that I enjoyed in here is that there wasn't, there wasn't this temptation to solidly land the Gothic on one side of a political dichotomy. Uh, Marshall highlights that you know we have a lot of Gothic texts wherein people who work in the mills themselves are heroes, but they also we have Gothic texts uh, where they are definitely the villains, and the Gothic is falling on the absolute other side of the political spectrum, and that resists, resists I mean, always- overt simplicity.
1: Yeah, we've we've always said this, right? We've always said this that the 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 key marker of of horror of the Gothic is its ambiguity, right? It's, mm-hmm. It is uh, it, it destabilizes, it provokes unease. Um, but there, are, again, we kind of come come to a couple of really uh, important questions, which I don't feel like get addressed as explicitly as as they maybe could. So. This chapter talks about a couple of, um, a few really, really important novels, particularly stuff, the stuff that I'm most familiar by, um, with is the stuff uh, by Elizabeth Gaskell. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I actually think is sort of missing here is like an engagement with the kind of ideological function of the novel. Um, and I don't know, don't necessarily know if it's explored in enough detail, the ways in which, the novel and a very kind of hegemonic middle class politics that was very interested in things like sanitation reports and factory conditions were were kind of interconnected.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think Marshall gets onto some of that in the chapter titled. Um, Oh, the next chapter, industrial, industrializing the Gothic victim heroine, mill girls and factory girls, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but it does, I think it does explore that to an extent, just not overtly. I, I don't think that winds up being overtly a uh, sub-theme of any of these chapters, which I definitely think it should have been.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I absolutely agree. Um, but I think, I think the, the idea of understanding the industrial novel as inherently Gothic is, is ex- extremely important. But then um, it's like, I, I think that because of fundamentally political reasons, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's essential to kind of draw out the fact that, that capitalism, which depends upon its constant revolutions in modes of production, its constant uh, kind of liquefying of, of, of uh, all social bonds and the pursuit of profit, is both traumatic and is kind of irreducibly haunted
0: Yes. Unsurprisingly, I completely agree with that statement. <laughs> so would you, would you, would you, oh, well, go on, go on. What,
1: what, what else did you want to pick out of this chapter?
0: Um, I really, I really think that covers it for this chapter for me. I think that it's a, it, it does what I, it does what I want out of the first chapter of an academic text, which just expounds on the introduction and sets us up for the rest of the book. Um, I, I think the, the rest of these chapters get substantively meatier, which is much more fun.
1: Well, let's press on. Excellent.
0: So, chapter two: industrializing the Gothic victim heroine: colon mill girls and factory girls. Um, And this is this is where I think things start to get really interesting. The kind of paralleling the factory girl with the Gothic heroine, Gothic victim, I I think is it's a very fruitful space to explore for some of the reasons that Marshall uh, gives us in the chapter, first chapter of this book. And I think it works to connect in some of these more overt political elements, right? About where where a lot of this media is coming from. There's a whole section of this chapter that uh, c- kind of works its way through the fact that a lot of the heroines of the kind of uh, industrial gothic uh, are secret secret nobility, right? Like you'll have you'll have a story where the basic plot is like. Uh, and some some aristocrat is as a child's you know like sold into factory labor as a way to get rid of them conveniently so someone else can hoard money um and then they wind up freeing themselves from that condition oh but wait they're also noble or something so there's this inherent political problem that we have to untangle here what what were some of your thoughts
1: I think it's really interesting to think about this in the in the sense of less of rupture and more of continuity yes. Like, all of this is kind of, like, classic, almost almost parodically gothic. Um, and I think it goes to show that, really, we are dealing with the second kind of revolution. We're dealing with a revolution in uh, modes of production, not social relations. Um, Absolutely. Which is why the capitalist revolution is so successful, right? Because it preserves much of the kind of patriarchal, pre-capitalist social forms. Um, whilst also, actually, as we'll get onto when we talk about the chapter around um, disability, whilst also kind of instituting new and even more rigorous and even more disciplinary and even more kind of uh, carceral social relations on, uh, on another group of people.
0: Yeah, and I mean, so on, on page 87, um, Marshall writes that Um, the kind of nature of this new manifestation of the gothic victim slash heroine is suggesting that despite the new social order of the industrializing world, women continued to live in unprotected or unprotected and precarious positions, which I think really underscores uh, what you're talking about and the the point here, right? Where that like the material conditions can shift dramatically, but a lot of those social social relations and social positioning stayed the same.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Or as,
0: as we'll get on to, uh, definitely as 100% as you mentioned in the chapter on disability, some of them got infinitely worse.
1: Yeah, but it's this is a really good chapter and I really like the attention to um, kind of like journalism and diary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's super important. It brings a lot of um, kind of depth to the conversation and it doesn't rely on just the kind of like maybe familiar or at least familiar to the kind of academic conversation uh, material.
0: Yeah, the inclusion of Diary was... Uh, honestly, I really, really, really enjoyed that. Like, I can't stress enough how, how good it was to see Diaries read in the same context as, like, Gaskell novels. But uh, I think that takes us on to Chapter 3, The Carceral Gothic and the Cotton Industrial Complex. So where would you like to start with this one?
1: Um, what well- what did you make of this? What did you make of this?
0: So this was the chapter that I was like when I when I got my copy of this book I was like okay like the one thing that this can't skirt the issue for is cotton right and in the material and social realities of cotton production right because the the millwork in in early industrial England is some of the worst working conditions on the planet. However, there's a much worse working condition that sends the raw materials to those mills. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this, this, I think like it's, it's important that we have this here and framing this as carceral, I, I think is, is also incredibly important, right? There, there's a lot of space, I think still in Gothic academia to look at, Prisons in the carceral state as extensions of the Gothic, and I think that this this chapter three here is is like a, a seed that will one day contribute to what should be a nice and haunted forest. How about you?
1: Um, wh- wh- what do you mean?
0: Oh, like so, just the, the the work that's being done in this chapter here. I think it's it's doing what we kind of talked about in the introduction, where uh, th- this chapter left me thinking a lot left me with a lot of questions left me like wanting to explore new avenues for understanding the gothic and its relation to issues like slavery and the production of cotton and the interrelated material conditions of you know uh slaves in the united states and mill workers in england
1: yeah i think there's some super interesting work on this out there there's um there's a really good chapter by uh marie mulvey Mm roberts Um, about this in their book uh, on uh bodies yep. in the Gothic, um, and yeah, I mean, like uh, people like uh Gerald Hoyne and um Eric Williams have been kind of making that historical link between uh slavery and transatlantic capitalism mm-hmm. for for, for a long oh yeah time. yeah definitely. But I I totally agree that I think it's super super worth bringing it up the the Gothic into the conversation and especially the kind of paradoxical relationship um, that, you know, uh, white workers would often use the, the, the phrase of white slavery mm. to describe their working conditions. But really, this was not uh, a statement that was necessarily in solidarity with enslaved people in North America and the Caribbean, for example, yeah. but was actually a way of prioritizing their own interests and their own kind of struggle uh over that of the emancipation of enslaved people
0: yeah absolutely and, and like a lot of that rhetoric well you're absolutely right it does seem to align um these kind of material realities It actually serves to put distance between them
1: yeah i mean um uh marshall mentions david Rodiger's excellent book uh the wages of whiteness mm-hmm. uh which is about how this formation of of white uh workers as an as an identity uh could i mean it could it could have been as you say it could have been a statement of kind of like solidarity uh, but it was in fact used as a way of kind of defining one group and prioritizing that group's interest uh against uh against the enslavement of, of of others
0: so do you want to uh head on to chapter four
1: Uh, Yeah, super interesting chapter. Um, What did you think about it? Let's do
0: it. So chapter four is Old and New Industrial Horrors, Monsters and Disabled Bodies. Um, This is an incredibly intriguing chapter. On page 141, Marshall writes, Despite the Gothic's problematic alignment of disability with monstrosity, the Gothic can, and sometimes does, do more than merely present people with disabilities as victims or villains. And I think that... a lot of this chapter really spoke to me because this is very in line with a lot of the work we do here on this show right we're we're very constantly um revisiting the fact that like monstrosity in the gothic is also the othered, right like these these two float in the same space right they have a natural unity and this this chapter explores a very specific manifestation of that what were what were some of your thoughts
1: uh, yeah I, th- I i think that's that's a really good way of putting it actually i think that's a really good way of putting it um i think it's uh what's really interesting is the way in which there emerges this new kind of disciplinary and s- surveilling regime uh, against uh against people who have been disabled mm-hmm. uh through factory work um marshall's very good on like the kind of journalistic accounts of people who have been injured or even killed often children in these factories and uh, the, the accounts being like, well, it was their fault. Um, and so like the, the emergence of people who've been physically disabled by, um, by the laboring conditions of capital necessitates that these people be excluded from the social body. And kind of like the people like Foucault have talked about this, that like pre capitalism, um, those with disabilities were actually were not treated well by any stretch oh, yeah. of the imagination, but we're, but we're integrated into the social body. Right. But this is also the era in which you see the emergence of, um, sanatorium and hospitals and like places where people can be locked away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not exiled from society, but reintegrated into a capitalist production, right? The, creating a machine that extracts wealth from people just because they can't participate in like the factory labor that would be extracting their wealth to begin with.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I, I, I love Marshall's connection of all of this into the social model of disability, which I think is, is still incredibly important to talk about and to, to work our way through. And uh, the fact that a lot of this, monstrous this monstrosity in the industrial gothic reflects the machines themselves you know there's there's uh, as i discovered reading this chapter there's a lot of literature out there from like this time period that describes gothic machinery in the way that you know early gothic writers would have described demons or vampires or something
1: yeah what did you think about the the metaphor section so that section looking at the metaphor of the of Dracula, Frankenstein, and Moloch.
0: So that that I, I think is really interesting, right? Because like, you know, I just recently gave a conference paper exploring like new uses of the Frankensteinian method or metaphor in part. And so looking mm-hmm. looking at like because the vampire is a great example, right? I think like the vampire struggles a bit as kind of a piece of our culture because it's so locked. Into one metaphorical existence, right? This this aristocratic nobleman with corrupt sexual values and loose morals, right? Um, mm. But I think like this this forces us to kind of see a wider space for you know these these uh, I guess set pieces in the gothic playground. What about you?
1: Yeah, I I. I think that's really interesting and I think it does definitely chime with some of your kind of more research focused work on uh populism and the ways in which not just individual bodies but like subjects as a whole can be kind of lumped together.
0: Definitely. Uh, anything else before we move on to chapter 5?
1: Uh, no, is that was there anything else that you wanted to bring
0: oh, up? I am I am good to go. Let's keep the spooky trainer rolling uh, so chapter five, the industrial environment Eco gothic Horrors. Uh, I think we can we can turn up the fun here like this this book just keeps getting more fun for me like I don't know I, th- I love academic writing. I just think it's fun so this this was a very fun chapter for me. How about you?
1: uh yeah, well, <laughs> how would you? How would you describe this? How would you kind of like set this up for someone?
0: So, so this, this chapter kind of uh, picks apart the eco-gothic. And if I, if I have one, uh, I don't even want to say complaint. Like if I, if I have one critique of this chapter, it's that some of these subsections are much, hasty, are much more hasty than others, right? Like uh, So it's divided into many subsections that deal with different kinds of eco-gothic terrain. So we have uh, discourse on the air as an eco gothic space and water and the landscape, and we kind of like move through each of these spaces. Um, the the section on air, I really really loved uh, looking at all. I do not for the no, it was it's John Ruskin, it's Ruskin reappearing in our show. <laughs> Uh, So when when Ruskin wasn't busy having opinions on architecture, I guess he was busy having opinions on the environment. And, you know, um, I I had not read this prior to this, and so this was just a thrill for me to find in here. But um, apparently Ruskin would describe, like, the smog that lifted above factory towns as, like... uh, um, It's a horrible paraphrasing here, but, like, the souls of endless dead or something like that. And I was just, like... Reading that, I was just like, that is... You, you hate to give it to him, but Ruskin you nailed it.
1: <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of there are a couple of kind of like uh, strands of sort of emergent ecological thought, which I'd still stick around, I suppose. Which is like you have people like um, Charles Fourier or uh, John Ruskin or um, who have a very kind of romantic mm-hmm. view of nature, right? So the whole point is to get back to a uh, a less kind of degrading mode of existence, uh, which is fine, but is is inherently a bit limited. And then, like the kind of flip side of that gets tied up into some kind of pretty nasty, uh, you know, fascist vitalist rhetoric yes. about nature and and purity and mm-hmm. and so to me, there's 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 a side of the debate which is missing here in how we kind of think about ecology which is a, a kind of Marxist ecology, which is like actually uh, human labor is not necessarily just pollutive or, or necessarily extractive and damaging. Humans have the capacity to transform and regulate um, the world around us. You know, that's a kind of classic Marx and Engels point, but it does not necessarily have to be in this kind of damaging and and destructive and... Almost demonic way, mm-hmm. right? Um, I I really like that section on air as well, and I think it's super important to kind of link industrialism and the emergent ecology movement.
0: Oh yeah, that's a really interesting point.
1: So I mean, because it's like uh, people were writing about the dangers of too much "quote unquote" carbonic acid being mm-hmm. released into the atmosphere in the 19th century yep. like they 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 knew they knew at the time what was what this was possibly doing but andreas malm in fossil capital makes a really important point which is like the rise of steam power was not necessarily about greater efficiency or uh, greater productivity but was about uh kind of control over subordinated labor mm-hmm. You know, and this book actually really does drive that home because it talks about the ways in which uh, workers become kind of mechanical. They become part of the machine which is doing so much kind of damage to the environment that it's it it looks so picaresque in.
0: Yeah, and this, this chapter also gets into how this kind of transformation is in and of itself a monstrosity. There's a lot of talk here about... uh so the, a lot of the early Gothic, like a lot of like pre-industrial or early industrial Gothic has sweeping mountain ranges and Italian vistas and endless forests as some of its settings ruins, uh, even, but, you know, by and by those all of a sudden get swapped out with the labyrinthian maze of industrial machinery. The, the mountain ranges get subsumed by like the kind of city horizon of factories looming over your local body of water and that, that shift, I think, is really intriguing in the context of the eco-gothic and how this chapter uses that as kind of a springboard to jump into these more specific areas like air.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I think I would agree with that. I think I would agree with that. And of course, all of this is tied up in like, like a, uh, the, the, the 19th century was like, the reshaping of the world was 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 for for the benefit of not just the people working in the factories, but uh, you know it would improve the the, the world around it as well. Um, and it's I think I think those tensions are highlighted really really excellently in this whole chapter.
0: I could not agree more. Um, and, and I think uh, Marshall even lays that out in the introduction. I believe this is in. Um, because for, and this is like the one part of the book that like scared me for a second because Marshall starts talking about the um, of the positive portrayals of industrial machinery, right? The, because there's a lot of like heroic poetry written about industry that comes out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, and for a brief moment, I thought we might be getting some uh, equivocation um, but no that gets shut down pretty quick and it's just to highlight that that stuff is that there is non-gothic explorations of this stuff um mm. so yeah i i don't even remember why i got on that tangent <laughs>
1: uh, well let's let's start thinking about um kind of moving towards the close of the book yeah yeah let's let's so, talk
0: about the epilogue mm-hmm
1: And I'll, I'll, I, what are what are your what are your thoughts?
0: I'll, I'll, I'll start. I'll start with uh, what might be a, sm- a spicy amita meatball uh, for our for some for some of our listeners out there. But one thing that I really appreciate about this book is that it recognizes some of the limitations of uh, angles specifically. Um, I, I, I forgot to mention this at the introduction, but this book is like it's angles focused and the marks and angles combo. And I really like that. I feel that like angles gets overshadowed by his like much louder and cooler friend. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that happens here in the um, epilogue is that uh, we're talking about the song of the shirt, right? This, this, uh, this used to be very famous, a very famous kind of Gothic depiction of industrialized labor. Um, which Marx criticized, or Engels, rather, criticized for being too emotional, uh, specifically that it was too emotional for the ladies. Um, And seeing that, you know, I don't want to say called out, I don't want to use the parlance of Twitter here, but seeing that put into a contemporary context and addressing some of those limitations, I think, is freeing. You know, it's, it's a reminder that we have tools left to us by Marx and Engels, but we do not need to replicate their character.
1: But yeah, absolutely, of course. Yeah. Um and I agree I agree the focus on uh, um Engels make, makes a lot of sense given his given his career. Yeah,
0: oh, and I especially am happy that they mentioned that in the book, um Engels being the son of a factory owner.
1: And a and a manager in a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. So he's bound up within this gothic nightmare even as he's kind of railing against it. Yeah.
0: Him. Um, And another thing that I liked in here is the invocation of the idea of the gothic everyday. You know, that certain aspects of our life are unquestionably gothic terrors on a scale that no author could have ever fathomed. But because they're aspects of our everyday life, we can't connect to them on that level. You know, we because we're so soaked in them, it's hard to see them as demons, essentially. And gothic everyday is a way of like... I don't know, returning to them their proper context, right? Which I I do enjoy. How about
1: you? Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of raises, this sort of raises a really interesting question, which is like, why are we so hung up on presenting the everyday as realistic? And what do we, because this is the thing I sort of like was circling around when I finished reading the book, which was like, the, the, the question of realism right if we've talked about we've talked about these real world examples being described in gothic language and actually often being more effective and influential when done so and we've talked about the fact that like even the everyday is suffused with a kind of gothic unease mm-hmm. like doesn't that make it just so immediately impressingly obvious that that realism is a particular ideological form of cultural production. Um, J- Fred Jameson writes about this in the antinomies of realism, right? So he says it's it's and, and really maybe we need to get beyond trying to think of ourselves and our own uh life in realistic terms. Uh because it's so invested in the presentations of a particular kind of bourgeois consciousness with, because that's what 19th century realism emerged as. So I think it's, I think this is super interesting, but I think this is why I'm sort of like kind of torn on whether there are things in here that, that could have been made more explicit because this raises a really big kind of important sort of philosophical and literary question, which is like how, how useful is it to talk about realism anymore when, uh, when you know, as Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, all that is solid melts into air. Like, capitalism liquefies everything. You know, we, we don't live in a quote-unquote realistic world, but, you know, the the kind of bourgeois cultural production of the 19th century would like us to think that we do. <laughs> Uh, what, what do you think?
0: Uh, I, I think I think you're absolutely correct, and I think that the politics of things never go away. You know, like like this is a this might be a controversial statement for some, but everything is political, and there is no way to avoid it unless you turn a blind eye to it. And I, do, I don't say that to mean that we must be joyless um, contrarians about everything and re- recreate the uh, Bohr's comic where it's like, oh, but you use a piece of society or whatever. But just to say that we have to be conscious of the fact that there is an unexilable political dimension uh, to to everything, and that includes like taking something as you know quote unquote realistic for granted. Um, which so so at the end here, there's an invocation of um, kind of Radcliffe's discussion of the nature of Gothic, right? And like there's there's horror which uplifts the soul, you know, it gives you a, a venue to raise yourself, and there's terror which brings you low and annihilates you. And, and kind of classically in Gothic studies, terror um, is, is viewed as being inferior. It's viewed as, it's viewed as being lesser, right? Because it has that, as Radcliffe would suggest, this annihilating capacity to it. It, it takes away something from you. Um, but I also think that there's space for that to be better than horror. There's space for terror to be lifted into the gothic pantheon and given its proper place you know because there are things in ourselves that need annihilation you know we can't just eternally accrete everything around us sometimes things need to be broken off uh, and discarded right or, or mulched <laughs> rather and so i think that that is that, that's kind of a, a question that we that we kind of walk out of this text with
1: and what what are some of those things do you think
0: So specifically, like, to tie back into your comment, it's the fact that, like, when we say realistic, we don't recognize that there's an ideological component there. We've accreted this definition of realism, right? We've received this definition of realism, and we don't engage with it. You know, we need to have that definition annihilated so we can forge something new there, right? We need to break off these kind of barnacles that that have been added to us slowly over time so that we may swim free again. What a weird analogy, but here we are. (laughs)
1: And I think, I think maybe maybe this is the kind of bigger concern, which is like, if we, if we say that everything is Gothic or the Gothic is in the everyday, the kind of quotidian, the sort of material stuff that quote unquote realism is often made up of, then really maybe we need to stop thinking as, like realism is the kind of central uh, mode by which we understand the world or, or even that we kind of culturally produce stuff uh, and it actually actually realism is a kind of like rearguard effort to not represent the world in its fullest but to exclude stuff
0: absolutely I, I think that is dead on and I think to a large extent the the body of this book as a whole does a job to do does that as a job to to help us at the very least shift the boundaries of realism right you know because Typically, when we talk about the industrial Revolution, we talk about it as a realist phenomenon. machines, quantifiable amounts of production, shifting material relationships. We, we ground those in this received idea of realism. But what happens when we do what was been or what has been done in this text and instead ground them in a Gothic understanding of
1: things? Yes, exactly. And I think that's the real strength of this.:
0: I couldn't agree more. Do, do you have any parting thoughts for, about uh, Bridget Marshall's uh, Industrial Gothic? Uh,
1: no, but if uh, hopefully this has served as a really good introduction to what we're going to be doing, trying to let people kind of, uh, you know, peek into the ivory tower, see what kind of research uh, academics who work on Gothic studies and horror studies are up to, and hopefully give people who maybe haven't really sort of engaged with a lot of this stuff a way into it. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you again to, to the University of Wales Press for, for uh, sending some of their um, back catalogue to us. Hopefully people will kind of enjoy what we're doing. Um, but yeah.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in. It's the first of our book review series. You'll be able to find this book review and plenty more on our blogs, thehaunt.blog and darrow.media. We look forward to the next time we read a spooky tome with you. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky!